Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody, to the, the Tour Championships edition of KickServeRadio.com. We're part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And, of course, we feature seven-time Grand Slam. Make that eight-time Grand Slam champion, if you include his Wimbledon doubles, former number one in the world, International Tennis Hall of Famer, Mats Vlander. We feature one of the great Texas Longhorns of all time, two-time all-American Johnny Levine, and it is Tour Championship season, guys. And as we record, Mats Vlander, uh, Caroline Garcia has just beaten Ariana or Arena Sabalenka. I'm sure I mispronounced that, but I'm sure you'll correct me. Uh, seven six six four didn't face a break point in the match, and really, to me, it was a unique women's match when you consider the fact that in this particular match, they were so dominant with the serve game. We saw a lot of that over the years with Serena Williams, but we really haven't seen this kind of dominant serving. Garcia didn't face a break point, Mats. Yeah, guys, nice to be with you. Yeah, I just, literally just came off the sofa, and I'm sure you guys did too, watching that match. And uh, I think because you mentioned Serena Williams and maybe throw Venus in there too. I mean, this is one of the main reasons why it's impossible for the two of them to compete on the women's tour day in and day out is because there's so many women that actually serve really well and they get free points. I'm never, I will never say they serve as well as the Williams sisters, or at least not as Serena, but still there's a lot of pressure on the server when you serve like that. So yeah, I'm very, very impressed with both of them. A shout-out goes out to Arena Sabalenka. I mean, the year that she's had, the way she started the year serving. I mean, she could literally not put a serve uh, in the service box. She was serving underhand. She was missing second serves outside the, the doubles line, beyond the baseline in the beginning of the year. And everybody was making fun of her. And she was making fun of herself. For her to come back is amazing. So the comeback of the year belongs to Arena Sabalenka. And for Carolyn Garcia, I mean, we've been waiting for this to happen for a long time. She was top 10 before she turned 20. Um, and she was the hope of French tennis after Amelie Moresmo and Marion Bartoli. Caroline Garcia really was the girl that was going to do some damage and she hasn't really. And now suddenly she has, she won in Cincinnati as well. Of course she won the French open in doubles with Christina Mladenovic and she's won a couple of those. So uh, well-deserved, such a great girl, so professional in every way. And uh, she's very well-deserved to be the French star. I mean, after all these years, she's going to be the one that has done the most damage uh, out of the Songa Monfils, Richard Gasquet, and so on. So well done, Caroline. Caroline, as uh, as Matt's mentioned, uh, Johnny, wins in Cincinnati, busts out and makes it to the semis of the U.S. Open. So a Final Four performance there, a win here in the Tour and Championships in Fort Worth. And it, it looked for all the world like a serve contest had really broken out. And if it was going to be a serve contest, you would think that it might be decided by who would or would not throw in the occasional untimely double. Sabalenka threw in a couple in that first set tiebreak, and that may have been what made the difference. 
Uh, Johnny, you and I talked a little bit before we went on the air about Garcia's doubles prowess, and Matt's made mention of that as well, winning the French Open. Do you think that that doubles experience helps with the nerves in the serve game in a match like this? Here's Johnny. Yeah, I do, Andy. I think that she's a seasoned veteran when it comes to doubles. Like Matt said, she won the French Open. Uh, She's won it twice in doubles in 2016. And then this past year, she's been a finalist at the U.S. Open. So she's used to playing in big moments and big matches, even though it's doubles. It gives her, uh, you know, that platform that she's been there before. um, And it gives her the confidence. And that serve, like you said, is really become quite a weapon for her. She's just really confident on it. I mean, you know, sometimes in that last game you saw where she throws her toss and it's not right in the perfect spot, she'll she'll catch it. I think Sabalenka might have been a little bit upset there because she does it fairly often. But I think she should be a strong top 10 player for years to come if she stays the course. and um, And she is just really fun to watch as well. Matt, if you're if you're Sabalenka's coach, to an extent, where do you draw the line between someone who plays extremely aggressive tennis to the extent of playing to win versus overplaying her hand to an extent and going for too much too often and not hitting big targets? It didn't seem like she really made Garcia earn that last game she didn't put enough balls in the court and it seemed like she gave Garcia the one or two free points that she really looked like she needed to finish that match off yeah I would have liked to see her coach maybe pull her over uh, and sort of get her up close and talk to her a little bit not maybe more so for Garcia to start wondering what what, what is she going to do now is she going to back up a little bit and put a few ball, more more balls in play especially when it's down to um, the nitty-gritty in the end and when Caroline Garcia has not won a big uh, event like this before. So, yeah, maybe a little bit. I heard Lindsay Davenport say also that uh, while commentating with Pam Shriver that she plays her best tennis when she's loose uh, and she lets it go. I have a hard time remembering players winning big, big tournaments when they're loose and they let it go. Of course, Lindsay Davenport did. For Sabalenka, I mean, you can say that she her career has been a very successful one uh, in the way uh, of her results, and especially in the way of her end, uh, year-end ranking. I think she was two at some point. She's pushing to be number one in the world. But at the same time, I mean, she doesn't really pressure her opponent with just hitting big all the time. I think put the ball in play and move a little bit and just see what they can come up with. So let me let me be the devil's advocate here for you two uh, Americans on our show. We had Jesse Pagula, of course, qualified in singles and doubles. Um, we had Coco Goff do the same thing. Unbelievable achievements for both of them. Uh, a long year, of course, for both of them. Uh, and they're coming from different parts uh, in their career, Jesse Pegula, it's a bit of a surprise, but she's a late bloomer and Coco Goff. And they, they were very unsuccessful here. What do you guys think? What, what, what does it say about the two of them in American tennis in a way? You have to look at a, at a successful year, I guess. But then you go in and you don't don't uh, threaten at all in any of the matches, really. Um, I mean, it was close, but I'm just a little concerned, I suppose. But at the same time, as an American, you guys, you tell me, what what do you think of their achievements? Well, Johnny, I'll take that first, if that's all right with you, because, Matt, you were the one that pointed out to me that in the Kazakina match, you were very concerned about what you were seeing 
from golf emotionally and felt that there was definitely some, some issues there that, that, uh, that needed to be, to be delved into and looked at more closely. I mean, they're playing on American soil. So you would think that that could be either an advantage or added pressure. We talked on the previous show about the fact that this, this year really starts to feel long. And these are, these are young girls that are new to the tour that haven't been battle tested to the extent of having to have, this kind of mental endurance that I think it takes playing tennis into November like this in the case of Coco Goff, is it a successful year? I mean, top 10 in the world in singles. And I think if she's, if she isn't now, she was number one in the world in doubles at one time. So at age 18, 19, two, three years on the tour, absolutely a successful year. Did she threaten in this tournament? No. Is that cause for concern? I would say no, because I just feel like the, 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 the season takes its toll and she, she ran out of gas, but, you know, attribute that to youth and she played a ton of matches and she played a ton of long matches and she played matches where she squandered match points and she played matches where she saved match points. And I just think how much is there in the emotional well and Johnny, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. And if, if I've missed anything, obviously I, I, I talked about golf, but maybe you want to add something, uh, you know, from the Pagula side of this thing. I, I just have a lot of great feelings about us women's tennis right now. Um, Pagula at number three golf at number four keys at number 11 in the world. And then you've got Danielle Collins who, has had a spectacular year, and I, I think she's got a great shot to get into the top ten uh, next year. Anna Samova. Anna Samova is is she's very dangerous, and she could do great. Um, the the American women have a lot to be proud about. Um, can they get a, a Grand Slam? Can they get win a major? I think so. I think one of them can can break through. I mean, it's kind of like we've talked about the women's game that anyone can win and there's been so many different winners why not an american and boy would that be something for 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 u.s tennis in general you do have sloan stevens who's dropped a bit but she could still be a threat too you can't count her out i mean the u.s women's um have a lot of bright spots so i think we're in for quite a treat in 2023 when it comes to women's tennis speaking of 23 garcia came a long way uh, with her ranking from the start of the year to the end of the year, what does that say about Holger Rune? Because I mean, we got to start with him in the next segment. So when we come back, we're going to talk about a kid who was 19 years of age. And no, we're not talking about Carlos Alcaraz. Now we're talking about another 19-year-old, and it just seems like they keep on coming. There is a youth movement in men's tennis, and we'll address that when we come back. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, the Tour and Championships edition, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Don't go away. A lot more right after this. AZ here, kickserveradio.com, and I'm joined by Paul Strata, and he is the developer of iPlayMeToo.com. Paul, it's a real-world tennis app for real-life scenarios. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, so here at iPlayMeToo, we basically built the world's most useful tennis app for the players and for the club pros. And I think if you'd ask most players at clubs, they'd like to play more if it were easy to get games, to enter tournaments, play in ladders. So we've basically digitized 
all of the scheduling headache and all of the tournament and competition set up so it's as easy as ordering an Uber and people can focus on playing and not trying to schedule and get a game in. An advantage that you've got in the market from what I've seen is in the presentation of the results, people like seeing their name and lights. Talk a little bit about that side of the site. Clubs can run all kinds of tournaments and ladders and round robins, and the players can enter their own scores right there from their app. The players don't have to text their score to the club pro. They can actually enter it in their app. The app is iPlayMeToo, iPlayMe, the number two, dot com. The developer is Paul Strata. Paul, thank you so much, and uh, and best of luck with iPlayMeToo.com. All of us that have used it have enjoyed it very much and appreciate the hard work that you have put into it. You bet, Andy. Thanks so much. And anyone who has any questions, they can contact us at iPlayMeToo.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're talking tour and championships, and the women have finished theirs. Congratulations, Caroline Garcia. We talked all about her in the previous segment. We're going to talk men's tennis, particularly Paris. Now, they're going into their tour championships. And then you're going to want to stick around because in the third segment, we're going to talk about some of the great head-to-head matchups all of all time. And I'll tell you why when we go to that segment, what kind of sparked that. But we're going to have some pretty interesting uh, matchups that we're going to take a look at. And you might be surprised by what their career head-to-head uh, totals were in, in wins and losses versus one another. But let's start with Holger Rune because it started out, Matt's, to some extent inauspiciously when he did beat Stan Wawrinka, but not without a tongue lashing at the net when Stan says to him, my advice to you, quit being such a baby on the court. Maybe that advice was uh, was hearkened upon because the kid went on a run after that win, beat five straight top tenors, including the Joker in the final match. Uh, first of all, what do you make of the little exchange between uh, Stan Wawrinka and, uh, and Holger Rune at the net? Warranted or no? I think it's warranted, and I think it's actually a great thing that he does because be, because he's a, a veteran of the tour and he's trying to come back, uh, and he's doing it with with grace and sportsmanship and, and obviously ball striking skills. But he knows how to win, uh, and then uh, and then you feel something. I mean, I think that he most probably does it because he's a bit upset that he's squandered a couple of match points, I believe, in that match. But at the same time, also trying to sort of teach Holger Rune a lesson. Like, this is not really how you behave. You're a great player, but but uh, you, you, you behave like a man, behave like a professional athlete, professional tennis players. We have certain etiquette that we try, try to go by. Of course, there are other players 
that could be mentioned that maybe necessarily that don't necessarily follow that. But uh, I think with a 19 year old, I, no, I think it, it is his place to say something like that if he feels it. And Holger Rune, if he takes it the right way. I mean, there was an incident, if you remember, at the French Open as well, after he lost to Casper Rude, where on uh, Instagram or Facebook or one of the social media outlets, uh, Holger Rune had gone out and said something that Casper came into the locker room and, and sort of shouted in his face when he was sitting there with his team thinking back about the match. And, and then Casper said, no, I didn't do anything like that. So I think there's obviously something going on here. And, and, and hopefully the tour gets these guys that, that uh, don't uh, obey all the rules. I mean, there are no rules uh, against behaving like a baby, like Varinka said, but sure, certainly he's not behaving like a baby when, when he's on the court uh, in those last few rounds. What an unbelievable tennis player, Holger Rune. Physically, such a beast at 19. The behavior comes from being maybe slightly overconfident, but also believing that he can do better. I'm better than this, and I don't mind it in a way. Uh, and because he's 19... I think that he will figure it out and people will lead him in the right way. But he's got a winning head on his shoulders and no, he's there to stay. This is not a fluke in my eyes. Does this behavior, before I go to you, Johnny, Matt, does this behavior remind you a little of when Andre was coming up and guys like yourself and particularly Yvonne Lendl, who referred to Andre as nothing more than a than a than a forehand and a haircut? But yeah. you 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 got a piece of that behavior when he was young, when you guys played at the French, and and you put him over your knee, but you let your racket do the talking, uh, bageling him in the fifth set at the French Open. Did you ever find yourself offering any advice, or or maybe wishing that you could, or seeing anybody else do the same with him? You know, to be honest, over the years and early goings for both Boris Becker and uh, Andre Agassi, I always felt that they, in their own uh, personal, individual way, they were asking for advice um, when we're playing exhibitions or or just a thing here and there. I can't exactly remember details, but I, Andre was more of a sort of a little bit of a clown back then, and he had an image to live up to, and I don't think Holger Rune necessarily has that. But I'm sitting here uh, having just received Robin Söderling's book, and the title in Swedish is Closed, uh, meaning he was very closed as a human being and as an athlete, and he's regretting so much of what he did as an athlete, but he was selfish. He was uh, a bit of an egomaniac, and he got to the top somehow. But I did hear his coach once say, once say, well, that's what happens when you got a winning head on your shoulders. doesn't have to be that. You have to look at your opponent and see what they're up to. And if you're too involved in your own behavior and your own mind, you're never going to reach your potential in terms of winning. You're going to reach your potential in terms of your own ability, but that's not what we count in tennis. You got to make your opponent worse by good body language. And Robin Sertling cleaned it up and he got to number four in the world. And of course, French Open final is two years in a row. So I think Holger Rune will clean it up and uh, he's going to be um, he's going to be a threat on every surface. And certainly Andre cleaned it up, particularly that hairstyle. Johnny, <laughs> after beating Stan Warinka, 
the run that this Rune kid goes on, beats Hubert Hercotch, beats Andre Rublev, overpowered Alcaraz, although I believe that Alcaraz potentially retire in that match, beat Felix Auger-Aliassime, who seems to have forgotten how to lose until he played Rune, and then against Djokovic. The kid held off six break points when he was serving at 6-5 in the third set to close out that match. It was, I think it was like a 20-minute game to finish off Djokovic. My question to you is, now with Alcaraz winning in New York and now with Rune, not necessarily winning the tour championships, but a title like this in Paris, are these youngsters, and I mean these youngsters, these 19-year-olds, are these guys really taking the sting out of what we're about to experience with the retirement of Roger Federer and the pending riding off into the sunsets of Nadal and eventually Djokovic? Are we going to be sort of hungry for these matchups with Alcaraz and Rune and Sinner and uh, and, and, and Tiafo and Fritz and the young, are, is 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 the tennis world ready for this next generation and ready to wave goodbye to these to these older guys? Well, I think it's uh, there's so many great young players that these matchups are or and, and rivalries are going to be something that we're all going to be looking forward to, but. Um, you know, we're, we're all, we all have witnessed, you know, three of the greatest tennis players of all time, three of the greatest, greatest rivalries of all time, three top, uh, you know, grand slam number of grand slam victories over 20. We'll never see again. So, you know, does it take the sting out a little bit, but not really. I mean, this has been an era of tennis that is so historic. I don't know how it could ever be replaced, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to have some new matchups that are going to create a lot of excitement in the game. You know, these young guys are doing their part right now. And, um, you know, Holger Vitus Nadskov Rune, I'm sure Matt <laughs> can pronounce that better than me, is a personality. He's very charismatic. He's uh, super fun to watch. He's got a personality. Um, and he held his nerves and, you know, really great against Djokovic and um, you know, he's got some fun antics out there. He does piss some of the other guys off, but you know what? I mean, he's fun to watch and, and I think it creates some excitement in the game. He's actually not the highest ranked at number 10 in the world, Danish player of all time. That, that would go to Kurt Nielsen, a former Wimbledon champion that was number seven in the world, and he passed away some years ago. But I think that Holgerun is going to pass Mr. Nielsen, uh, at least in the rankings. I don't know if he'll get a Grand Slam title, but he certainly will be one of the ones that will be at the top to look for with new champion, for sure. So, Matt's Johnny uses EC Bay. I'm not so sure I'm ready to see these guys ride up under the sunset, but when he describes... Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, he uses the word historic. Well, it's only historic if it's history, and it's not history until it's over, right? Are we ready for this thing to be historic? I think we're ready. I mean, I'm not – I don't want to see them. Uh, I would like to see them right off in the sunset, but it's a bit too late for me. I would have liked to see them all right off with 20 slams each in a way, although the, the year that Nadal has had has been unbelievable and Djokovic with all the problems he's had because of the uh, not being vaccinated for COVID-19. And then he wins Wimbledon and no ranking points. So I, the year has been unbelievable. And I think Carlos Alcaraz – 
he's well-deserved at number one. But people always say, is there an asterisk next to Alcaraz's name? Mm, not really. Maybe because of Djokovic not being able to play. But you can't go there either. So I think Leighton Hewitt once said, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago at a meeting that we had some former uh, Grand Slam champions, we met and, and sat down and sort of discussed where the game was heading. And he said, you know what? It's not about them. It's about rivalries. That's what he had on his mind. I'm like, really? Are you? Yes, it is about rivalries. He said, it doesn't matter who it is. If it's number one and number two in the world or whatever, it's rivalries. And I think that he, now I realize he's actually right. The thing is, though, that Carlos Alcaraz sells tickets. He sells tickets before he's even hit a ball. Holger Rune hit a couple of tweeners against Djokovic that were maybe untimely in a way, but he did try to entertain. Um, and he will sell tickets. And you, Johnny, are right there because he's bringing out more of his personality than I think we've seen in the past, which means he's most probably calmer. So uh, that's what that's what you need. You need these guys to have a personality. I think that when a great champion is born, it's not necessarily what they do with a racket, but it is the way that they behave. It becomes consistent and you go to see the Rolling Stones and you get the Rolling Stones every single time. And they sell tickets because of the history of that they made throughout their shows. I think with Alcaraz, it's no problem. Holger Rune, I think there will be no problem. Question is, are they going to push aside the Tsitsipas and the Zverevs and the Rublevs and the Khachanov and these guys will then suddenly become the Kei Nishikori Milos Raonic of, of that generation. I don't think so because I think they're too good, but certainly um, I think I'm more excited about the youngest generation right now than the one in between, but they will not uh, bend over very easily. I think they're going to physically try to intimidate these two youngsters for sure. Well, and I can tell you that you got to throw Nick Kyrgios in with that bunch of guys. It's not going to be displaced easily and a guy that's going to continue to sell tickets. All right, as far as the asterisk is concerned, I don't think you have to give it an asterisk because, A, you had the Grand Slam leader of all time in that draw in Rafael Nadal. Yep. You had the defending champion who had beaten Djokovic in the previous year's final in that draw. So that right there, I think, legitimizes that title and just the tennis that Alcaraz played. No, I'm more thinking number one in the world. Oh, okay, but okay, again, okay, okay, say, got it. I don't. It's not, no, it doesn't get an asterisk. But I'm telling you, there are people out there. I believe that, that. Remember this year and say, well, Novak wasn't allowed to play and blah blah. No, I'm not one of them. I think he's well deserved. He's won on on different surfaces, and of course, he won a major with everybody playing except Djokovic. So I'm with you there. Let me just clarify. Got it. No, I thought you were. I, uh, but as now, as far as rivalries go, we're going to go to break now. But when we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the great rivalries of all time and see where they stack up and see if there are any surprises in either of your minds with regard to when I tell you this person versus that person and what the all-time uh, match count was head-to-head against those guys. When we come back, you might find some of those to be very, very interesting. You're going to get another history lesson on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, because we're old and that's what we do on this show. So bear with us. I think you're going to enjoy it if you've been around a while. Don't go away. You're going to like it. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi guys, Sarah Z here with a Kick Serve, Quick Serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say, more advanced or more experienced in our life, our fitness levels take a hit if we're not careful, don't they? You know, Sarah, they do, unfortunately, and I highly suggest supporting your activities at every stage pre-workout, intra-workout, and post-workout. So you want to think about a pre-workout. We have a product called Endgame, and that basically will allow you to increase your energy and focus during your workout. And then intra-workout is almost just as critical. So we have branched-chain amino acids called BCAA311, and that's a perfect product to allow your body to almost refuel while you're working out. It's a super hydrator as well as a muscle recovery while you're working out. And then finally, protein is critical post-workout and body fuse lean protein is one of the highest quality proteins on the market. Very, very effective, a slow, long burn, six to eight hours after ingestion and after that workout. So your energy, you're not, you're not going to crash and your energy continues. You're feeding your muscles and you just feel Great. So with these three elements, pre, intra, and post-workout, you're really going to support yourself at all stages in any activities, in intense workouts, tennis matches, body strength conditionings, uh, sessions, etc. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we want to just clarify something because Johnny f***ed up, but he is, he's willing to own it. So, Johnny, Kurt Nielsen, not a Wimbledon champ. Come on. Go ahead. What is he really? A two-time Wimbledon singles Thank finals. Thank you. Better research next time, buddy. And that was in 53 and 55. Okay. The, 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 the Grand Slam title that he won was mixed at the U.S. Open with Althea Gibson. All right, so that puts him right there with the likes of Justin Gimmelstab in terms of a career of a Grand Slam mixed doubles champion, uh, having won with Venus Williams. So that's where we'll no, put. No, that's unfair. That's unfair. <laughs> no, no. I'm giving it up to Justin. I'm trying. Well, I Justin got two nice, of those. Too. He got they two got, of them. So there you go. All right. So let's go on to what we were going to talk about, which are these all-time rivalries. And I'll tell you what sparked this. Was it out of nowhere? I'm looking at social media, and it just had an account here that Stefan Edberg versus Boris Becker all-time. Matt, do you know what the all-time match head-to-head count was between Becker and Edberg off the top of your head? 
Uh, I do not know off the top of my head. This is what sparked it, and it really surprised me. So I thought, well, I'm going to take a look at a few other of these. Becker and Edberg, as pros, played 35 times. And Becker beat Edberg 25 out of 35 times. So it was 25 to 10. Does that surprise you? Wow. Yes, that does surprise me. Um, wow. I guess Boris must have won most of their meetings on the slower surfaces or on clay courts, I guess, because they must have played a bunch there. Um, in big finals, I think they're pretty even. But, yeah, it does a little bit. I saw him beat Edberg in Davis Cup uh, once or twice. But, yeah, that's a surprise. Johnny, McEnroe and Borg could have had one of the most legendary rivalries in the history of the sport. And in fact, for as brief as it was, they did. What do you suspect their overall head-to-head match count was versus one another, if you had to guess? Well, um... this is what I expected. All right, do you want me to give you the number and let you comment on it to tell me if you're surprised or not? (laughs) It ended 7-all. That's it. McEnroe 7, Borg 7. And you made the comment on the last show that you felt that it was Borg's inability to see himself beating McEnroe in slam finals anymore that ultimately maybe sped up his departure from the game. But does that does that meager number of 14 matches surprise you when you really think back on Mac and Borg? Not really, because Borg retired so young. Yeah. There were other great players in that era. It wasn't like a you know, dominant Djokovic or Federer in, in, in that era was that guy was in the finals of every slam. So it doesn't really surprise me when McEnroe was not in those French opens, like, you know, every time in the finals playing Borg. Um, I would like to know the last, you know, five matches that they played. I know, I think the last two for sure Borg won, but it'd be interesting to know the last five what those results were. The last two were, as you said, Wimbledon and uh, and the U.S. Open in 81. Okay, how the about... McEnroe won. That McEnroe won. And that, exactly. Ma- and that Mac won, won both of those, and that was the end. Yeah. How, about, how about Mac versus, I don't know, Mats Vlander? What do we expect happened there? Do you know offhand, Mats, your, your lifetime record versus Johnny Mac? 9-6 McEnroe. I got 7-6 McEnroe. Okay. Uh, unless right. he got you in a couple of XOs or something. But, yeah, I got, <laughs> yeah. I got Mac 7-6 here. And, I mean. Davis Cup? The Davis Cup, was that the first is one? Include, but is that included? In yes, your... I did see that in uh, listed in the, the St. Louis match, the one that, that I think is still great, going. That well, was yeah. one of the, the greatest tennis matches of well, all Well, it was time. one of the longest. That's for, yeah. that's for, that's for damn sure. Well, you know what? I count I count even a dead rubber we played in 1984 after, okay. uh, after I beat I beat Connors on clay in Gothenburg, Henrik Sundström beat McEnroe and then uh, Edberg Anders Jared beat McEnroe on Fleming and on Sunday morning, of course we had been out celebrating a little bit cuz in Sweden you can have a beer at 18, you don't have to be 21. Because I was only uh, twenty at the time. I don't think it would have mattered, but go ahead. well, as we as we were flipping the coin toss, he looks at me and he says something like, "I hope you went out and uh, you are as hungover as I am." <laughs> I'm like, "Oh God, no, I don't think so." But most probably, yes. But I counted that match because you count dead. Okay, rubber. all right. But I really didn't know. But yeah, no. But you know what? I'm going to put you on the spot. I hope you have the because I'm not trying to put you on the spot. No, go I ahead. Like, you know. Borg Connors. 
I've got it. I've got that. I happen I happen to have that right in front of me. It wasn't coming next. Well, let me see it. All right. So Borg Connors, they played 23 times as professionals, and it was 15-8 Bjorn. Okay. So I think Connors got the better of Borg in the early part of that rivalry match. You're probably a little younger. Remember that? I'm a little older than you. And I remember thinking to myself, I, you know, I was like you, Johnny. I was I was really a big Borg guy and I was waiting for Borg. And finally, once he beat Jimmy, once he had the recipe, he he went on a tear against him and he won quite a few out of quite a few. So Borg 15-8. Now I'm going to throw this one back to you, Matt, and then Johnny. McEnroe versus Connors, lifetime. A little bit more of a sample size there. And of course, talk about maybe the two Americans that that liked each other the least in history, I would have to go Jimmy and John, particularly during their playing days. What, what do you, how do you think that one landed? I, I feel like that one landed uh, a dozen each. Okay. Johnny. I, I gotta believe McEnroe was the, had more wins. I, I bet they played, they played a lot because they played in a lot of U S tournaments. I bet they played 30, 35 times and i bet macro won probably 20 maybe a little more i'm gonna take your word that you didn't google it because macro won 20 times connor's 14 wow johnny you cannot be serious so so very very well done and as we all remember you know mass it started uh in 1977 in the semis of wimbledon when a kid that's going from wimbledon to go check into his dorm room John McEnroe makes the semis of Wimbledon, still goes to college and wins the NCAAs. That was the first time he went on the court against Jimmy Connors. And of course, that was alluded to in McEnroe's recent biography, the documentary uh, on, on, on Showtime. But 20 to 14 Mac, um, what was the what was the the advantage that Mac had over Jimmy that would give him that kind of an edge, Matt's? Well, I think um, John always, always always reminds me that he actually grew up on clay. Uh, at on the clay courts at Port Washington, um, outside in Queens, outside of New York City, and he actually grew up as being a baseliner. And I think that he had no problem hanging with Jimmy from the baseline. Uh, Jimmy was an unbelievable returner of of serve, but uh, I think John figured out a way. He's got unbelievable half volleys, which is what you had to do against Jimmy Connors all the time. Uh, but I think that John would be able to uh, from the baseline hang with Jimmy. So I think Johnny Mack most probably um, thought he was a better tennis player than Connors all over the place. Uh, obviously a better volume, but I think he fancied his chances from the baseline. Uh, and I think John felt on slower courts that he could beat Jimmy. On faster courts, I know he thought he should beat him pretty much every time. But um, I think that Connors' game didn't necessarily uh hurt someone who's as talented as McEnroe. He can deal with a half volleys off of the serve return of Jimmy. Um and then I think he could he could stand up to Jimmy because because of his uh emotional situation and uh he could take it to Jimmy in a different way. He must probably piss Jimmy off more than more than anyone else could. And I, I don't think necessarily Jimmy would uh it wouldn't favor him to try and do anything 
uh, towards John. But yeah, I mean, I remember watching those guys on TV at, at Wimbledon and it was just an unbelievably, I mean, it was more interesting watching the two of them play than watching Borg play either of them, uh, I have to say, because of the spectacle that it was. And I would never in a million years dream that I would be able to play against the likes of uh, Mack and Ron Connors as many times as I did. Well, you had a good record against them. All right, Johnny, I'm going to give you, I'm going to run through a few more and then I'm going to have you comment on one particular rivalry. Uh, Lendl, 21 wins over McEnroe's 15. Lendl, 15 to Matz's 7. Becker, 7 to Matz's 3. And then here's a really impressive one because we were going countrymen versus countrymen with McEnroe and Connors. I've got a 20-match sample size with V. Lander versus Edberg. And I got V. Lander coming out on the right side of that one, 11-9. Johnny, why did Matz beat Edberg? That's pretty impressive, don't you think? 11 out of 20 wins over the likes of a Stefan Edberg. Is it a little brother syndrome? Is that the deal? Well, you're asking me or Matt? You. Well, I mean, are you saying that you're surprised that Matt's won as many as he did against I'm not saying I'm surprised. I'm just saying I'm incredibly impressed. Thank you, Johnny. Yeah, I'm not not surprised. No. I I think I just got misquoted. I'm not sure. I don't know. I I viewed always as Matt's being – It happens to be right here is why you're saying this, but go ahead. No, not at all. I mean, I know Matt's has always said that he he views Becker and Edberg as as better careers than him, and I, I don't see it i mean i go by major championships and those guys have six and mass has seven and mass had those how many did he have before the age of 21 four yeah i mean that's his that's a historic record right there those guys just got a lot of fanfare because of wimbledon and all those matches that they played at wimbledon and that gets a lot that gets a you know a lot of a lot of interest because notoriety because it's Wimbledon. But when you look at, you know, what Matt's did in 88 and then also the French opens, which I've always said, I think is the toughest slam to win. Matt's doesn't, I mean, he's the winner of it, but he doesn't view it that way. I do. So I don't, I think it actually surprises me that Matt's doesn't have a better record against Ed Burr. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, Very good. Let- let me throw throw something in there. So it obviously depends on uh, that step on the surface. Yeah, exactly. And Stefan would play the Swedish Open on wet clay courts in Sweden right after Wimbledon when he's sort of done well there and I didn't. And then I would play him in the semis of the Swedish Open or something. And then, um, and Boris Becker, the reason we only played 10 times is because I think we only played once on clay, uh, which was right before he won Wimbledon the first time. So I think that, yeah, the surfaces matter. But just the reason I'm bringing that up would be that, if Roger Federer played in the days that we played at, when the courts were extremely fast, when they were fast, and they were extremely slow on clay, not because the clay courts are slow, were slower, but because of the rackets. I mean, if Federer played a smart schedule against Djokovic and Nadal, he would most probably be ahead. Uh, and if the surfaces were the same as they were when McEnroe and Connors and these guys played, I mean, Federer would have beaten them overall on faster courts and he would have chosen not to play Hamburg, Monte Carlo, uh, Rome and all these tournaments where there was very small chance that he's going to beat uh, Nadal. But Federer is just such a class act that he, I think he felt he had to play all of them. But so I think the head to head, I, you know, and when, and the reason I'm bringing it up too is when you say Lendl, 
me 15-7. I mean, I think that really you need to look at maybe finals on tour, but after that, it's got to be slams. I mean, you you cannot. You got to go for three out of five sets. That's when the head-to-head really matters. And I think if you ask all the players, McEnroe in particular against Lendl, let's talk about slams. Let's not talk about what happened on tour. Um, and I always will stick with that. All right. Before we go, I'm going to throw these out, and then we're going to. I'm going to ask you guys each: What are you either most surprised by of these head-to-head results, or maybe most impressed by? Pete twenty, Andre fourteen, and th- exactly the same as as McEnroe and Connors. I found that to be fairly interesting. And then I I ran the numbers on the round robin of uh, of Novak, Federer, and Nadal. So uh, Novak versus Federer, you've got Novak twenty seven, Roger twenty three, and at majors, uh, Novak eleven and Roger six. You got Novak versus Rafa. You got Novak thirty, Rafa twenty nine. And that's 11 wins for Rafa in majors, seven for Novak. So that's an interesting stat there. People may not know. And then the last one, Federer versus Rafa, uh, they played a mere 40 times and Rafa 24-16 there and uh, and six wins in majors versus Rogers, three wins in majors. So your case that you make for Novak as the greatest of all time um, certainly uh, is lent to based on this little round robin. So I will ask you both before we go, Matt's of all of these, what is your most either surprising or impressive head-to-head matchup of all of the ones that we discussed? Okay. I, I mean, I kind of hope that Andre is not listening to this, but beating Pete Sampras 14 times, and, and none of those would have come on a clay court because I don't think they ever, they most probably didn't play on clay at all. So Andre is playing Pete on all Pete's favorite surfaces. Uh, whether it's indoors or a fast hard court at the U.S. Open or a grass court at Wimbledon. And somehow Andre pulled, pulls out 14 out of 34. That to me is, uh, it's not surprising, but that to me is very impressive because he wouldn't have gotten him beat on too many slow clay courts or slow hard courts for that matter in those days. Just to clarify, Johnny, before I go to you, I sat at Westside Tennis Club and watched Pete Sampras dismantle Andre Agassi in the semifinals of the U.S. clay courts. Wow. And the next day, he would then lose to Andy Roddick for the second time in two weeks. That was when Andy burst on the scene and beat Pete in Miami, and then he beat him in Houston. And I'm going to Houston think I'm going to watch basically a challenger, which is what that tournament was in those days. And somehow or another, I'm watching Sampras and Agassi on a Saturday night and I watched Pete beat him and toy with him. And Andre never left the court so angry that I'd ever seen. <laughs> and then, and then an 18 year old Roddick come in and step in and in front of, uh, in front of the late great George HW Bush and, uh, and win that match. Okay. So Johnny to you, the most impressive and or surprising of all of those results that we discussed, what do you, what, what do you think kind of you find to be interesting? What's interesting is, and Matt's will have to come up with the, fact on his wins against Lendl, but the fact that Lendl had a 15 and seven head to head against Matsy Lander. But when you look at what happened in grand slam finals, I mean, that's, that's, a, Matt, that's Matt's has the edge. I think three, three to two, edge. yeah, three to two, yeah, three wins there. So you would think if someone's 15 to seven, 
they would at least have the winning edge in in if they played in majors. So that that's a pretty interesting you know result there, I think. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a situation that you know Matt's wins seven majors out of thirty three titles. That's where why. you look at a you look at a Martina Navratilova, they were talking about it during these tour championships. One hundred and sixty seven singles titles and eighteen majors. Matt's Vlander thirty three singles titles and seven majors. So pretty good percentage of majors won. I'm going to go right back to the very start of this thing and say that I'm absolutely shocked that Boris Becker beat Stefan Edberg 25 out of 35 times, particularly when you look at those matches of note, Johnny, that were those amazing Wimbledon finals. And those were doozies. And I think it was, was it advantage Beck Edberg there? Did he, did he win two out of three of those finals? He did. Okay, so so there you go. So a similar situation. And to Matt's point, 25 to 10, Edberg, you know, maybe yawned his way through a few of those, uh, or at least, you know, several of those. But I, I still say 25 to 10, that would not – I would have thought 35 matches, that's, that's going, you know, 18, 17, somebody. Um, and then one thing that I came across here real quick before I let you guys go, Matt, you talked about these matches on wet clay in, in, uh, in Sweden, but you and – Edberg actually got after each other a number of times in the Australian Open. And in particular, there were two results. 88, you beat him by scores of 6-love, 6-7, 6-3, 3-6, and 6-1 in the fifth. But what happened two years later? I'll let you maybe remind us of what that score was when when you and and, uh, and Stefan played in the Aussie Open in 1990. <laughs> so in 1990, what happened uh, was that um... – I beat Becker in the quarterfinals, which I shouldn't have. Okay. I don't know. My ranking in 1990 was out of the top 20, which for me obviously was a not a good year. It was way out of top 20, I was So I was just really, really surprised to be there. I wasn't prepared to be there. I wasn't playing much tennis at the time. My dad had, had gotten really sick okay. uh, four months before then. And uh, I remember I played a tournament with a cap that had – which is very sad, but it had skulls on it. I was just upset with the world and and so on. And and I was afraid of going to play against Stefan. He was the best in the world, I would say, at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, Edberg could do that to me because if I was not fresh um, in my legs and uh, emotionally, that I could not return his serve. I mean, I literally, Becker's serve was easier to return than Edberg's. Because with Edberg's, it's like Patrick Rafter. You better move, and he's going to move it around, and you're going to be late for everything. And if you give Edberg any volleys that are above his knees, you're not seeing the ball anymore. Uh, and uh, I didn't have the power to power through Edberg on any of my returns. I played him in Indian Wells once, got destroyed. Stockholm Open, slow hardcourts, got destroyed. But uh, that was, that's what Edward could do to me more than most probably any other player. He could make me feel uh, very mediocre. And, and maybe because I treated him badly as, as his two-year-older brother, if you may, while making him sleep in the by far the smallest bed when we went to the state championships. And I was there in the 14 and under. He was there in the 12 and under. I said, Stefan, you're sleeping over there. But that's a chair, Matt. I don't care. I'm sleeping in the bed. You're on the chair. And I think it took it out on me after uh, when we got old and mature. I would say that going into that 1990 match, that's exactly what he was thinking about. (laughs) Uh, All right. So that's fun stuff, guys. Thanks for going through all of that. And Matt's uh, great, great effort against these guys. I mean, we're looking at the best of all time. And you've got winning records against a lot of these guys. And uh, 
very very cool stuff but but uh you know the ultimate point is is that Novak Djokovic winning records against Federer and Nadal um Mac 20 to 14 over Jimmy I find interesting but uh all in all uh very interesting to take a look back at this stuff uh that's it for this week and we're going to be taking a look at the tour championships in Turin we want to take the time to congratulate the doubles team of Austin Krychek and Yvonne Dodig uh, under the coaching eye of our friend Philip Farmer, we want to congratulate them on a great last four to six weeks of doubles play to qualify for those tour championships. So maybe we'll be hearing from one of those boys uh, when we move forward. So enjoy the tour championships in Italy, and we will be back to talk about them in two weeks. You've been listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network with the great Mats Vlander For Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. Talk to you soon. <laughs>